Well, good morning, everybody. I told the first service this. They were a little, I stood up here a little while while they continued to talk. So while we're getting used to this whole thing about me getting up after the turn and greet, you go ahead and greet if you feel so led, okay? You know, don't let me stop it. So we're so glad that you're here and do want to say welcome to everybody. And to start out today, I want to be as clear as possible about uh, what's real and what's true and, and, and what actually happened and what you can go see for yourself and all that kind of thing. So I'm going to show a couple of pictures. I, I, I'm always reticent about showing pictures from the trips to Israel and that sort of thing because it's sort of like, you know, Dwayne and Sharon's Excellent Adventure. Uh, and I don't want it just to be that. I don't want it, but, but we already sung about this. What I'm going to show you and what's going to be in the text today in the, in the book of Mark is one of the thin places, one of the places you can go that's very close to where he was, okay? And so I just want to show the, the, a couple of pictures to you and uh, explain uh, the situation so you can kind of see it for yourself. And, uh, you know, you actually can go there today. On the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's this town that's been excavated in the, in the last hundred years uh, called Capernaum. And that's a main center for where Jesus did his ministry and so forth. And the, the town has actually been excavated, and the places uh, that he was involved in are, are, are there. And so you can go and, and see them for yourself. And, and here, this picture here is an actual picture of the synagogue that is in that town, which uh, keep that in mind because you're going to hear that uh, term. You're going to hear that today. The synagogue in Capernaum was like the synagogues today for Jewish people or in that day. It's not where they sacrificed animals or anything like that. That was in the temple in Jerusalem, which that's changed for Jewish people too, obviously, but they, um, they, they would go there to worship and to gather and to pray and to hear teaching, okay? So Jesus went into the, the synagogue, this synagogue, and, and uh, worshiped there. Now, I need to tell you, explain something to you. This actually, these pillars and this, this um, floor and everything isn't the exact synagogue that was there when he was there. In, in the 300s, okay, just the 300s AD, just a couple hundred years later, uh, this thing burned, and, and you know, somehow, the, I don't know how the stone burned or whatever. There was, there's wood in there. It burned out, and they built a new one in the 300s because it's also a holy synagogue for the Jewish people. So they built this over it, but here's the thing. This is an interesting picture. Watch this. Look at this. This sign is here uh, on the side. You see the black stones on the bottom? That's the first foundation. The white stones are the second foundation. Well, what's the big deal there, Dwayne? Well, the big deal is, is that that foundation, those rocks are the rocks that would have been there when Jesus was standing in this synagogue teaching. You can go see it for yourself. Pretty cool. It's a thin place. It's a close place. And in fact, there's this anterior room, this extra room to the east of this synagogue from that room I just showed you earlier in that picture. But look at this video. You can see people uh, moving around in this extra room that's off to the side. That's the teaching room. So Jesus would have taught there. Well, not, not there, but like 12 inches or less there. Right? I mean, as we see it today. And, and the reason I want to do that is because we're dealing with some sensational information today that's in the text. I'm not making it up. I'm not looking to amp anything up. But I want you to know that this is a real place where you can go put your foot on, and it was a real place then, and here's what happens, beginning in verse 21 of the first chapter of Book of Mark. They went to Capernaum, and when the, the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. 
And the, teach, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not like the teachers of the law. I bet they loved that. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want it with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So what we have here is we have this teaching with authority. We saw that last week when Jesus came, he came with authority. And then we have this impure spirit. Well, what's impure spirit? I were to understand that this is a demon. And someone maybe who's fairly new here is saying, honey, I didn't know this was that kind of church. Yeah, we are when it says it is, when the text says it, when the Bible says it is, that there's these, there's these spiritual entities, entities there's these uh, forces beyond. But imagine it just popping up in the worship service here, or in the teaching time. Just, just popping out, you know, people thought this guy was just an old crank, didn't, you know, just kind of stuck to himself. All of a sudden, what do you want with that? You know, that kind of thing. If anybody's feeling the urge, just, you know, just stop it right now, and we'll talk after the service. I'm just, could be clear. That's a joke. I'm not, I'm not expecting you. <laughs> he thinks we're possessed. No, 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 don't. But what I do need to say is this, there, you know, if, if you've ever um, been in a situation where, uh, or you've heard this saying, or you've said this thing, you know, in the, in the old days we used to say Christmas time. I wish it was Christmas all year round. You remember that? Maybe you don't say that anymore because, you know, somebody ran over you with their car on Black Friday. I don't know. But it's kind of like, you know, I wish everybody treated everybody like this year round. Well, I'm afraid that we've moved into a season and into a time, into a cultural era where it's Halloween year-round. And I don't mean just Fright Night. I mean something scarier that we'll talk about later. A cultural stream, a thought process, a something that's scarier that, than just, you know, the Fright Night that we do, okay? It's got nothing to do with trunk or treat, nothing to do with trunk or treat. It, 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 but the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, the basic reality is that, you know, Jesus' arrival, the, God, the arrival of God's kingdom on earth in Jesus sparked a great spiritual war. And it's still going on. Jesus has won the victory. We'll see this in the end. Just a spoiler alert. He's won the victory, but the war will continue to go on. The battles will continue until Jesus comes back. That's the storyline of the Bible. That's the storyline of the Gospels. And I just need to say that I'm not doing this because Halloween is this week. I'm doing it because it's in the text. And you can ask anybody who saw the message plan that I make up, uh, you know, going forward. I did not have demons in there, okay? I, I didn't realize it till earlier this week. I'm not proud of this. Didn't realize that that's what this text was really about in terms of this, this clash of kingdoms. Okay, didn't realize how fully that was here and here until I started digging into it uh, on Tuesday. But what we see here is that, you know, the kingdom of God is invading the adversary's domain. And, and as we already seen, the, the, the evil henchmen of the adversary, they just cower in front of Jesus. And, and there's some things we can learn about our time and in our lives and how we're supposed to, you know, how Jesus wants us to live and how we can live above and beyond some of the things that tend to pull us down. Okay, there's, there are all kinds of things about that. But I do need to say this. There is a part of this message, for those of you who are parents, uh, I, I can't see anybody out there right now, so I'm not thinking about it, but, but there is a section of this message that is PG-13, all right? I'm just, we're also that kind of church where we, let you, we warn you ahead of time. 
and there's great uh, children's ministry down the hall and great little, you know, those young people know how to, those little people know how to worship better than we do sometimes, but they're doing it down there right now, just letting you know. But I will give you a forewarning before we get into that section or that illustration. But what Mark does is he gives three illustrations, three rapid fire stories of exactly what this means, that there was a clash of kingdoms when Jesus came on earth. Look at the first one again, reaching back into verse 23 and reading through to 28. It says this, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and he came out of him with a shriek. (laughs) to which people are going, oh my gosh, did I just see that? The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, who is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He gives orders and impure spirits, they, they obey him. Like we said last week, Jesus speaks, people obey, so do demons. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. I bet it did. This whole business of an impure spirit, the literal translation could be defiling spirit. And for those of us who are germ freaks, it doesn't mean a hygiene problem. It means something that can enter a person or something that can influence a person, really, and, and influence them to, to such a degree and enter their life to such a degree that it's destructive to them, that there's, there's an actual spiritual entity, if you will, okay? An actual uh, spiritual um, uh, thing, a, a being that, that is, is a part of it. That's what this is referring to. That's what the Bible seems to indicate and seems to be talking about. Now, I, 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 it's not a subject we deal with a lot in our lives and, and, and kind of in our strain of Christianity, we don't deal with it a lot. And our, 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 uh, in, admittedly, in my life and in my study, I don't deal with it a lot, but, but I'm beginning to think maybe we should at least keep it uh, not front and center in our minds, but we should start thinking about it. We should start considering it. Uh, and what first set me off to doing this is I, uh, Jordan and I were at a, a preaching seminar last spring uh, with a guy named uh, Tim Mackey. He was teaching on Isaiah. Tim Mackey is the, one of the co-founders of the Bible Project, if you've seen those videos. Extremely helpful. I think it's the, the greatest thing. I mean, it's not scripture. I mean, it's describing scripture, but man, I'm telling you what, it's the greatest thing since it came out because <laughs> it's really drawing a bunch of people into understanding what the Bible is. So, but he was teaching on it and he referenced a, a colleague of his, his name's Dr. Michael Heiser, who uh, is the uh, scholar, Hebrew scholar in residence up at Lifeway uh, Bible or Logos, if you've got that Bible program up in Bellingham, Washington, and he's written a book called The Unseen Realm. Again, something we don't see, think about a lot because we don't see it as much. See, if, the, if Satan can fly underneath the radar of what we can see, all the better for him, just behind the scenes. And, you know, that's why these, these demons couldn't help themselves but speak up, but, you know, because there was Jesus, but if they could just be quiet under the, they, they would like to do that. But here's what, here's what uh, Heiser says about this passage in the book of Mark. It's very enlightening. It says, it might sound hard to believe, but this, is, this event is the first time in the entire Bible we read about a demon being cast out of a person. No such event is ever recorded in the Old Testament. The defeat of demons falling on the heels of Jesus' victory over Satan's temptations, remember last week he was in the desert being tempted by the, the devil, 
marks the beginning of a reestablishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus himself made this connection absolutely explicit. Quote, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, Luke 11, 20. And since the lesser gods, or demons, over the nations are cast as demons in the Old Testament, didn't need to say that, he already did, the implications of our study are clear. The ministry of Jesus is marked marked the beginning of the repossession of the nations and defeat of their, quote-unquote, small-g gods. So what it's saying is, is that Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, and thank God that he did, but he came to reestablish his rule over all, over all nations and all people, not our rule, his rule over all of that. And, 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 and so that's why this gospel starts right out with this story and, and right out with this, this uh, indication of, of what it is. Now, this, this idea that there really is a spiritual realm and with these kinds of entities in it uh, reminds us that what Jesus is trying to say is, is Jesus is real, this is war, and he intends to win the war. Now, with that in mind, there's a couple of can they's that is in these entities, these demons, can they's, and, and um, do they's. The first one is, do they, do they influence the anxiety level and the confusion level and the, the uh, outrage level of a society today that we're seeing all around us? Well, they did in Jesus' time. Second, do they? Can they influence relationships? Can they, can they harm relationships by entering a marriage or a friendship or, or uh, between parents and children or what? Can they, can they push that around? Well, they did in Jesus' time. No one would pretend or say that Jesus' family was possessed. Please understand me. <laughs> as tempting as you might, may, that might be to you, but it's not. We, we don't say that, that that's the case in that case, but they certainly, the enemy drove a wedge between Jesus and his family. We're going to see that later because they, they thought he was crazy. They wanted to take him away and lock him up and get him out of this because he was acting like a crazy man as far as they were concerned. And so there was this wedge that drives. Well, how, how about the, um, the, the can they's? Well, can they, can they possess people like they do in like the exorcist? Well, no, that's, that's, that's more Hollywood than, it's not exactly, it's more like um, d- demonic influence uh, in those extreme cases than it is like actual possession. It's, possession is kind of a weird word the way we talk about it. So, uh, biblically speaking, the evidence is there. Well, what about, what about Christians? Can they uh, possess or, or control Christians? And the answer is no, from everything I can see in, in the scriptures, in the New Testament in particular. You know, we, we can study that together, but that's, that's likely not can they influence the culture and the environment and the places around uh, all people uh, in, in a way that, that, that uh, you know, is difficult for all, everybody? The answer is yes. Just like our believers or not believers, we're in this with everybody, with our fellow human beings. I mean, yes, the answer is that can be a, 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 an issue, and, 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 and the spiritual realm can negatively influence all of those things. But again, the point that we need to understand is not trying to get out to the minutia of how that all works and what, you know, and not to find a demon under every rock, but to recognize that Jesus' purpose in coming was to invade the adversary's domain and to take it captive for God. That's what he's up to. 
That's what he's still up to. And that's what he's inviting us to be a part of his kingdom for. Okay? In fact, you go on, Mark clarifies in the next story some things that are really important because if Satan can make things muddy and unclear and confused and messed up, that's where he gets his spot. It's like, it's like cancer cells to inflammation, man. It, 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 he drives right for where that, wherever that hot spot is in the culture, wherever that pain is, he goes right for that and tries to stir everything up and confuse everything. Look what happens in uh, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went, to James and John, uh, went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Okay, I gotta say something here. Simon, of course, is Peter. Later on, Jesus gives him the name Peter, but right now, uh, Mark calls him Simon because his name hasn't been changed by Jesus yet. But this house, just a few feet away from that picture I showed you of the synagogue, you can go there and it, the house is actually there. They're pretty sure because in the, in the sixth century, um, they built this octagonal church over this house, and it's just like a one-bedroom studio. It's not even, it's hardly even as big as a one-bedroom studio in our, in our day. You think you've got cramped house. I mean, this is crazy. And yet, Peter and his family, Andrew, his brother, and his family, and we're going to see in a minute, his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, all lived in this tiny little house. Imagine that. that, that there's some fire right there. But but so, so they, live, they, they live in this place, and here's what, this, is, this is why they went to the house. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her and took her hand and helped her up. And then the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, notice the compassion here. It's not like, hey, hey, I got demons to cast out. I got teaching to do. You know, it's not that thing. It's like he, has, he stops it all, and he, he's got this kingdom, this global thing he's working on, this cosmic, and all of a sudden he stops for that woman, for that moment to heal her. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That's the kind of God he is. He can, he can do all of that at the same time and be present for all of that. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And the whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. And he also drove out many demons, there they are again, but would not let the demons speak, watch this, would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, this is the first example, the reason I slowed this down, this is the first example in the book of Mark of what's called the messianic secret. Jesus is constantly telling people and telling demons, don't talk about what just happened. Don't tell anybody. Don't talk about it. Don't tell anybody. Now, with human beings, as we're going to see in a minute, he kind of lets them go their way. But with demons, when he says shut up, he means shut up. And they don't talk back. <clears throat> and that's what Mark's trying to tell us here. Well, you know, that, that makes a person go, well, well why? You know, why, why would they, he... he uh, say that because, you know, the demons are calling out and saying, hey, you're the son of God. Doesn't he want people to know he's the son of God? And the answer is yes, he does, but he doesn't want demons telling them what that means. You know, there's a lot of debate about what the secret means, but at the very least it means Jesus wants to control the agenda of the information of what his kingdom is about. And he's not going to let demons tell us what it's about because they would love to twist it and confuse it and, and mess it up. That's, that's their job. And Heiser has another <clears throat> statement on this uh, passage that's actually in the footnotes. It's just an interesting thought here. Read the footnotes. Sometimes you get good stuff in there. Watch this. Uh, 
He says, the powers of darkness were not aware of God's plan of salvation. In other words, these demons didn't really know what was going on. Satan can't see what's above the line. He can't see in the light of God's rule. He can only see in the darkness of what sin has has, uh, resulted in. They, like Satan in the wilderness, knew that Yahweh's message had come and that at least one purpose was the repatriation of the nations of the world under Yahweh's dominion. But they did not discern that the death of the Messiah was the linchpin to the plan. They had no idea. They thought they could kill him and it would be over. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah would result in the reconstitution of God's family as one body united in Christ, which is the church, which was not tied to physical descent. In other words, he brought about the church, the existence of the family of God as we know it today, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, so that we are all the people of God who follow Christ. That is what, what he came to do. But, this, but the, these demons, these, they, they couldn't see it, so Jesus wasn't about to let them talk about it and about to let them explain it. You see, the reason is, again, is because they lie and confuse, and the word of Jesus is what controls reality, what describes reality. Jesus' word, his teaching, if you will, his word is what controls reality. And, and so... Back to verse 30, where it says that uh, Jesus healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. What I think Mark wants us to understand, and this is genius. I mean, it's almost like the Holy Spirit guided him to write this. Yeah, see, that was a joke. Um, now, I mean, I'm, not that he wrote it, but that I made that joke. But anyway, uh, disease and demons are not the same thing. I think that's the point he's trying to make. Yes, sin and evil has influenced this world. Disease has entered this world, and that's an evil thing. But we're not talking about demons under every rock. We're not talking about demons behind every disease. This is very, very important. But what it also illustrates is that sometimes it's hard to tell, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to tell whether or not there's, there's a, you know, spiritual influence, dark spiritual influence in a disease, particularly in mental disease. Uh, there, there's a guy that I, I knew a long, long time ago, the first church I was the pastor of, way up in the sticks in Alberta, Canada. His name was Vernon. And Vernon struggled and struggled with mental illness, and his aunt uh, kind of sicked me on him, and, and I went out and tried to hang out with him and so forth and so on. And I would find Vernon doing crazy, crazy stuff. He'd be out in the woods, and he'd be standing with, uh, against a, next to a stump with his Bible open, and he'd have gloves on so he wouldn't touch the Bible, and he'd be turning the pages with a stick, just mm, moving back and forth, kind of moaning like that because he's afraid to touch the Bible. And, 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 and the other times I'd find him out in the woods just making these horrible sounds and screaming and stuff. He's like, what in the world? So I took him to a psychiatrist, a Christian psychiatrist in this city not far away, uh, 90 miles away. And uh, we got in there and the psychiatrist dismissed him. And he, he very nice guy, Vernon. He wasn't, wasn't like, you know, scary or anything like that. I mean, that stuff he did was scary enough. But, but uh, psychiatrist asked him to leave the room and told me, he says, you know what? I, with all my training, I can see that there's psychosis here, but I can't tell you what's clinical and what's of a spiritual nature. So just take them to the psych ward and so forth. So I tried to do that and didn't work out very well because he took his own life a year or so later. But the reality is, is that there's still, you know, this time in my or still looking back on it, I can't really tell what was what. But here's the good news. It's not up to us to tell. 
That's above our pay grade. What Jesus is saying here is, I've got this. I can tell you, I can unpack the confusion. I can unpack the, li- unpack the lives. It's not up to us to say, okay, your, your uh, illness is, is because of a demonic thing. What did you do in your background? Blah, 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 and so forth and so on. That's not, it's, not to, it's not to lay the blame on people when spiritual entities do what they do. That's not, that is not uh, what Jesus is saying at all, and that's not right. And so we keep the thing separate. We keep it clear in our minds. We don't let the enemy blur things because his operation is to blur and to blur and to blur and to blur. And this is the part that we're getting to now. That is the PG-13 part. You see, I think the scariest part about demons is not what you see in the movies. It's not what people do at Halloween, although I would suggest you don't dress up like a demon. Okay, why would you do that? It's not any, what's the most concerning part is the demonic or the antichrist thought process. The antichrist thought stream that can get into a culture, not so much get into individuals per se, but it get into a culture and influence individuals. That's the scary part. I mean, because we're hungry for something beyond ourselves. As, as Augustine said, St. Augustine, he says, our, our lives have this God-shaped void in it. Until we find him, we're restless. So, of course, we're restless. G.K. Chesterton took that and he said, yeah, and what we try to do is we try everything to wake ourselves up from this nightmare that we have. In fact, we try bigger and grander nightmares to wake ourselves up. And, 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 and so, yeah, the, this this thought process that can get a hold of a culture. And that's the thing that concerns me, and I think the thing that could concern us, and that we should pray against, because it's beyond us. We don't take it responsibility for ourselves. We say, Jesus, you know we need help with this, and pray constantly. That's what his disciples, his followers do, is ask him to be a part of their lives and their world, and pray for people in their world, and in our country, and, and wherever they are, and whatever they do, and, and so forth and so on. And the reason I say that is because we have so many things, so many situations today that are evidence of this sort of antichrist thought process, don't we? Moving, and it's even infiltrated things like our courts. And, and, and this is the case I want to talk about. We could, we could pick about, we could pick all kinds of cases. We, there are thousands of these that we could pick. But I'm just picking this because this is this week. And I am not trying to load up on the people involved. I'm not trying to load up on the, pro, on the parents. I'm not loading up on the kids. I'm not loading up on anybody. I'm just saying to you that this is evidence that there is a thought stream that unless Jesus checks it and we have some renewal in this country, we better have our eyes wide open. And the cases I'm talking about is that in Texas this week, a jury found against a father who was asking for sole custody of his, one of his twin sons, a son named James. And the reason he was asking for sole custody was that his mother, who's a practicing um, pediatrician, has come to believe that James, since he was three years old, that James is, in fact, a, a girl, and that he should be allowed to transition at seven years old. Seven years old. To a girl, and she intends to do that if she won this, this court case. The father, as far as I know, he's not a Christian or any of that. It's just that he's he looking at the medical evidence and realizing, man, this can do severe damage. Do not do this to my son. 
And it just happens to be that the mother's on the other side. Here, here's some of her evidence. Some of her evidence is, is that when he watched, as a little child, is when he watched uh, the Disney show, uh, um, which is not a bad Disney show, it, Frozen, he identified with the girl character more than the boys. He started to want to be called a girl's name. Apparently it's a Starfire is a girl's name in some cartoon. He wanted to be called Starfire. And but his mother said, no, you can't be called Starfire because she thought that was a problem. Said, you can be called Luna. Oh, okay. There's, there's a tape actually floating around of him talking to a counselor, a psychiatrist, psychologist, and saying, you know, are you a boy? And he says, no, I'm a girl. And, and, and the psychologist says, well, how, who told you that? He said, my mom did. But think of this. To actually give, you know, chemical castration, to, to give the hormones to this kid so he doesn't go into puberty and all the other dynamics of that. Parenting, you know, we, we parent our kids through stuff like that, their feelings about themselves all the time. Mommy, Daddy, I think I'm an axe murderer. No, you're not, you know. And I'm not comparing the two. I'm just saying that the reality is, is that that's a, that's a weird... What a bizarre thought process. You know, last spring, another court case happened in British Columbia, just up the street, up I-5. A Supreme Court in, in British Columbia, in Vancouver, came down with a court case that said two parents who had filed uh, for an order that their, uh, I think it was a 10-year-old child, I can't remember if it was a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy, but the, the, the 10-year-old child was, was, was not allowed to make a sex change, a, a transition, okay? They, that's what they asked the court to say, that they were the parents and they got to make the choice. The court went the opposite direction in British Columbia and Canada. They said, no, no, she has a right or he has a right to do whatever they want. And on top of that, they said, you parents will be in a violation of the law. That is, you will do violence within your family and we will indict you if you don't use the proper pronoun for your child. Get that. And I, when I heard that last spring, May or April, I thought, ah, oh, at least it hasn't come here. But this weekend happened in Texas. I could understand if it was Oregon, but it was Texas. Right? It's that thought process just kind of wiggling through like a leech. And you don't know about leeches, but when we go to Minnesota, there's these leeches in the lakes. That's what, that's what this, that's the scarier part of the demonology, if you ask me. Now, thankfully, just to kind of give us some, okay, we can go on with the scripture now. Uh, the judge on Thursday overturned what the jury said. Very rare for a judge to do that, but the judge in this case said, no, no, for the foreseeable future, you both has custody, and this can't happen unless both of you agree. So there is some reprieve. Texas governor's getting involved. The Texas legislature's getting involved. <laughs> Watch and hold it. But you won't see that in the national media. Why? Because it blows the anxiety and the angst and the horror of that story blows their narrative out of the water, Right? Demonic thought process. Not labeling people, not saying they're possessed. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that. What I'm saying is, what kind of society have we become if, uh, you know, things that, if you talked about them five years ago that are happening right now, we would say, you can't do that. That would never happen here. That's abuse. And yet, here we are. What kind of, what kind of uh, society... Uh, calls out a war on biology. What kind of society says it's okay for a kid, uh, it's, it's not okay for a kid to choose their name, but it is okay for them to choose their gender? 
What kind of society says, it's not okay if if no men are adults, not okay uh, if a kid gives uh, their consent to sex, but it is okay to change their sex. The only thing that makes sense is somebody has been influencing and infiltrating the minds of this culture and this world and sent it down a track that is horrendous. That's what I mean, Halloween, year-round. And so... What, what Jesus is trying to tell us here is not go sensational on it or, or try to, you know, freak us out, but, but to show us the reality of what's really real. And that's what we need to do here. In fact, that's why uh, Mark kind of lands the plane with one more story. Actually, it's, it's a story with a prequel to it that's very helpful for you and I as to what should we do and where should we go and how should we deal with things that are all around us. Just like Jesus dealt with things that were all around him. Look at verse 29. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, so that was the end of one day. <laughs> as soon as they left the uh, synagogue, they went, oh, we already, we already read that, sorry. Back to verse 35. I got a big chunk of scripture here today. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And Simon and his companions, Peter and his companions, went to look for him. Remember, Mark is reporting what, what Peter told him, so Simon gets center stage. And when... He, they found him, he exclaimed, uh, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Now, just let's pause here for example. Jesus is extremely busy, isn't he? I mean, all of this that we're going to read today took place in about a day and a half. That's busy. And there's all this stuff around him, very intense. Not, you know, this wasn't easy probably for him either, just very intense, the stuff that's going on. You and I sometimes have busy and intense lives, don't we? So, what does Jesus do? He gets to a quiet place, has a quiet time, and he prays. Hmm. Well, you know, th- that would say that if, if we want to prepare for our day, if we want to prepare for whatever the day brings, whatever the week brings, over, the best thing to do is stay connected with God and make sure that we're connected there for our sakes. You know, that we be there, okay? So, if, if you're a person who says, I just have a hard time with prayer, have a hard time with quiet time. I understand that, but I would just ask you a question. Who do you think you are? Jesus. Um, But anyway, back to this. Verse 38, Jesus replied, let us go uh, somewhere to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and doing what? Driving out demons again. Verse 40, but a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant. Now, we need to be clear on this. don't have time to go into it, but it's clear from the text that Jesus was not indignant with the man. What he was indignant with was the prince of the power of the air that has, you know, was uh, perpetuating the evil and the sin and the hurt that had caused this disease. Not caused the disease, but, he, but the disease has entered the world. That somehow, it's, it's not part of God's plan, disease is not. So basically what Jesus is saying is, is you know, no, no, no. I, I'm so sad and I'm indignant that you have to be in this situation, okay? And so it's sort of like, you know, the kingdom of God has arrived and we're kicking tail and taking names. That's, what he's, that's why he's indignant. 
He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you do not tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And what did the man do? He did exactly what I would have done. Instead, he went out and began to blab to everybody and talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town. That's another reason he wanted it to be kept quiet. Could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. Yet the people came, still came to him from everywhere. Now, I need to make two clarifications. And one is, I need to t- say two wrong extremes on, with regard to God's healing of us. Does God still heal today? The answer is yes. All the evidence is yes. He does still heal today. He still can heal today. So an extreme of saying, you know, a lack of faith that God can heal today, that's, that's, that's not correct. That's not, what Jesus, that's not what Jesus invites us to, to believe or to live into. But the other extreme is also uh, uh, true. That, you know, just because I have enough faith, because I'm a person of faith, doesn't mean that God doesn't have higher ways and higher plans. Sometimes his plan is to take us through these kinds of things. Other times, he doesn't take us through. But the, the death of a believer, a Jesus follower, sometimes is, is uh, we, we, we never understand it. And we shouldn't until we get into eternity. But... The reality is, is sometimes God does, allows that because there's a greater thing to happen. Let me give you a case in point. A f- friend of mine whom I worked under for 14 years when he was a leader in our denomination, uh, doing schools of prayer. He was, he was the head of prayer and evangelism in our denomination for years. For 14 years I worked under that. And uh, he passed away last Sunday after a two-year bout with um, cancer. And pretty quick. And if, if you, you probably never heard of him. I mean, he, he's, he uh, wrote a couple books. He, he was uh, president of uh, the Center for uh, Evangelism at the Billy, uh, Billy Graham School of Evangelism, or Center for Evangelism. He was a co-pastor at Wheaton Bible Church. But his name was Lon Allison, and he passed away after a, long, a fairly short, uh, you know, two-year bout with this illness. And, and, you know, Christianity Today this week did an article on him that basically said that. You may not have heard of this man, but all the people that did, people are calling him a hero today. And there are people coming to Christ because they're hearing the story of how he lived through this right to the end of his earthly life, not to the end of the end. But I can tell you this, Lon was so intent on evangelism and reaching as many people with his life as he possibly could. If he, well, I'm sure he does, knowing that people are coming to Christ because of this, he is so excited. Not because he doesn't miss his family or wouldn't miss his family and so forth and so on. I, I, all of that, I understand it. But, but uh, God had higher plans. And as difficult as it is for those of us who knew him, that, you know, that's something you rest in. See, if you don't have that kind of thought process that Jesus has got this, that he's got this figured out, we are sitting ducks for all, every single stupid idea from the demonic thought process that comes along. And we're sitting ducks for freaking out, you know, when we don't need to freak out. We're, we're sitting ducks for, for fear that we don't need to have of, of, of any of these things, of, of what, what's happening in our world and in our culture today. You see, it, it, we too are busy. 
But just like Jesus, we need to stay connected with what is really, truly true. You know, there's this great process that Paul talks about when you confront evil, when you, when you experience something that's not right, and you know it's pretty sure it's from the dark side. He says, shine a light on it. Ephesians chapter 5, go read it. Ephesians 5, shine a light on the darkness. What happens to darkness when you shine a light on it? It destroys it. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to shed light. That's why these demons couldn't help but speak out and speak up. Another way that's in the New Testament, in the Scripture, is when you mock evil. Not mock it because of who we are, but mock it because of who God is, who Jesus is. You mock evil and make fun of it. Can't stand it because it sheds, it sheds a, a, the light of mockery just he can't take it. There was a, uh, an author uh, a number of years ago now that maybe you haven't heard of. His name's C.S. Lewis. And his first international book that went international was a book called Screwtape Letters. And he has one of the most profound statements of how we should think about these dark spiritual entities. Because Screwtape Letters is about this you know, senior demon telling a younger demon how to operate and how to get this guy that he's in charge of and so forth and so on. And uh, it's, it's really mockery. But at the beginning, in the preface of the original printing, which I might have a copy of, uh, Lewis says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. The one is to disbelieve in their existence. Ah, they don't exist. And the other is to believe and have an excessive unhealthy interest in them or fear we might add. Oh. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist. He was an old British dude, so what that materialist means is someone who believes that this material world is all there is. Or a magician, someone who believes in the, on the dark side of that, the dark magic arts and so forth. And, and that's all they believe in is the spookiness of this. With the same delight, the, the demons are fine with that, with the same delight. Readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar and there is wishful thinking in hell as well as on earth. <laughs> that last part, it's funny to me. Uh, the, what, what he's saying is the devil thinks he's going to win thinks he's got this. He still thinks after the death, resurrection of Jesus, the formation of the church, all he still thinks he can pull us out in the end. Oh, I wish, I wish, I wish. But he can't see above that line. He can't see what's really real and what's really true. So where does all this leave us? Well, I want to leave you with six um, clarifying maybe practical things that you and I can do to live our lives as kingdom people, as Jesus' kingdom people, in the midst of the, the, the world and the society that we live in, not out of fear of the demons in the dark, but not ignoring them and not ignoring the reality of a demonic thought process when we see it either. Six things, see what you think, and you could probably expand on these, but this is what I've got today. The first one is this. <clears throat> Immersing yourself in the gospel scripture is the greatest protection and inspiration in any world age. Immersing yourself in this, especially the gospels, is the greatest protection. That's why we say read your Bible. In other words, what you wind up doing when you do that is you focus on the victory of Jesus, not in all the bad news that's coming down the pike. That Jesus has already had victory over all this stuff. That's you got to focus on the victorious. The second thing is, the second possibility is the only fear that is good for you or, or your mission, your purpose here on earth, 
is the fear of the Lord. Why? Because that keeps us connected with him and just say, I want more of you, Jesus. Today I need more of you. I need to acknowledge you today in that way. Thirdly, be confident by being humble in the presence of the unseen realm. It's not that, oh, we're all that. It's that Jesus is all that. And so we're humble before that, but we get to be servants in his courtroom. We get to be a part of his court, a part of his, his kingdom, people, and, and confidence in him. And th- th- fourthly, lean into Jesus who knows all about what is going on. In other words, focus, focus on the joy of living with Jesus and the wonder of it, the wonder of the gospel, as opposed to uh, the mundanities of sin and evil. Have you ever noticed how sin and evil is just so redundant? I mean, it seems tantalizing at first, but once it gets hold of you, once the sin gets hold of you, it's just the same darn thing after another. Boring, mundane, more than boring, it just tears you up. But the wonder of Jesus is new every morning, as Lamentation says, right? The wonder of God, it's new every morning. And then rely on your Christian friends to walk with you uh, and you with them through the daily life situation. So let's take your life group or your growth group, for example. Rely on those people. And they'll, they'll need to rely on you at some point. So sometimes they will need to pick you up. Other times you'll need to pick them up. That's what we're for. That's why Jesus formed the church. That's why he formed his family. Let's use that phrase why he formed his family and that he brought this together so that we are all his. And there, there's a final one here now, but I, I need to share with you a scripture that kind of defines it because this final one has been misused by some people, not you, uh, but your neighbors. And, and I just want to share with you what the Apostle Paul says about it. It's from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul very explicitly tells us what to do with the, the evil and the demonic thought processes we see around us. And I'm going to start a little bit back of the verse that I really need to get to. He says in halfway through verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I, Paul, who am timid with you face to face, uh, when face to face with you, but bold toward you went away. Isn't that interesting? Super Christian. The Apostle Paul, there were some things that was like, uh, I, don't, I don't really want to have that conversation with those people. You know, it's, it's, even he, that gives me a lot of help. Verse 2, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. This is not about flesh and blood, as he says in Ephesians 6. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds not by wielding the sword other than the sword of the word of God, but the sword of the word of God isn't something you hack somebody with. The sword of the word of God is something that the Holy Spirit uses to go to a heart of a person. A completely different kind of thing. But watch this. This is the verse I wanted us to understand. Verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And what do we do on a regular daily basis? We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought. That would be a good thing to do every single morning. 
to just start out by saying, Lord Jesus, I'm going to take the, the thoughts today that come my way that I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to drag them over into the light, into your light, into Scripture, if you're doing your devotional time and they come, and just make them obedient to you. That's what he's saying. That, that's a very powerful, powerful truth, isn't it? That that's exactly what he invites us, that Jesus invites us to do, to drag it right in as if the, as if, you know, the, the demons were drug out of that man in that synagogue and Jesus, and, you know, our thoughts aren't the demons, but no, but they do, you know, when they, they, they try to drive a wedge between us and him, drag them into the light, and Jesus' light will destroy those thoughts and make them new, make new thoughts out of it. That's why Paul says what he says. Now, I'm going to call a band out here, and I just want to invite you to take these six things and say, well, what practically speaking does that mean for me? Because they're pr very practical things that you can do in terms of living in this world and the news that comes at us so fast and furious all the time. And the reality is that we need to know that I think Jesus wants us to understand and Mark wants us to understand as we go forward in this gospel is this isn't just some clash of empires. This isn't a battle over this territory or that government or that thing. This isn't some culture war. This is a cosmic war. This is, this is something that he is in charge of that's way beyond our pay grade. But he's got this. And he has come and, and he put foot on terra firma he declared, game on. And he is continuing. It's a mop-up operation. Satan doesn't know how badly he's lost, but he's lost. But God, Jesus in the Scriptures tells us so we can know. And every morning, wake up. If you struggle with that or if you struggle with the daily news or you struggle with it, I just encourage you to do what I do. And that is wake up every day and say, Lord, this is your day. I will take every thought captive and put it at your feet and make it obedient to you. Help me to do that. Amen. Let's do that right now. Let me pray for us as we pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you, we thank you, that you haven't just left us here, that you haven't uh, saved us. We thank you for that. And we couldn't do, uh, you solved our biggest problem. But you've also made a way for us to live in this world that is free from the darkness that so easily entangles us. And Lord Jesus, I just pray if there's anybody here who's struggling with a burden or a problem or that doesn't know you, that this would be the day when they can bring it to you and that you will shine your light and love and your healing spirit on them and that they would in fact be touched and drawn into your kingdom and become kingdom people and that we would all learn to live like that. Not like it's just something we learned on Sundays or we read in the Bible one time, but that it's real. It's really real. And it's true in our lives because you're true in our lives. We love you for that, Jesus. And that's why we pray in your name every week and every day. And we give you our thoughts and make them captive to you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.